Good morning, everybody. I have the privilege of preaching through James chapter 2 today. So if you go ahead and open your Bibles there. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 will be our text. Um, before we read that, I just want to tell you, we're going we're gonna to hone in on partiality. Partiality is injustice in judgment. Injustice in judgment. Partiality would be what the Proverbs talk about um, in a little bit of a different setting when it talks about having unequal weights and measures. One standard for one person, another standard for another person. Verse 4 describes of, of our text describes the partial man as a judge with evil thoughts. Now, there's one other thing I want to point out before we read our text, and that is something I found interesting, is James, the book of James is, uh, the name James is an anglicized name for Jacob. And so when we think about Jacob as the author of this book, it might add a little bit of a typological layer with which to read this letter and this chapter in particular. Think about Jacob's story, Jacob the patriarch's story. And more than a few times he runs up against partiality. He's guilty or somebody's guilty toward him. Jacob's father, Isaac, is partial toward Esau, right? He looks and acts very different than Jacob, and his father prefers him for those reasons. Jacob, um, this partiality is nearly the demise of Isaac and nearly cost Jacob what God promised him, the blessing, if it weren't for Rebekah. Jacob, then, is partial toward Rachel, but must come to love and except Leah, from whom Judah and Christ ultimately come. Can you imagine um, if Jacob were ultimately given to his sinful partiality, the fruitlessness, the consequences of that sin? So as we read this text, we can think about our great father Jacob a little bit. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there. Or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Do you have, but you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you? And drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. 
We're going to go through these verses one by one, section by section here. So verse 1, even as James is getting to address unrepentant sin within the church, we have to come to terms with this fact that James is not trying to look squinty-eyed to see if these brothers that he calls brothers multiple times in our text are truly saved, truly regenerate. You see how he proceeds? Brothers. He affirms their standing as brethren and he tells them to behave like it. Behave like Christians. He doesn't begin by saying, brothers, if you really are brothers, <laughs> if you're really brothers, stop sinning. But, you know, maybe you're not even really brothers. In verse 8, James even questions their faithful obedience. He calls them to examine their faithful obedience to the most basic command to love neighbor as you love yourself. And he does this without questioning their status as brethren, which he reaffirms again in verse 14. My brethren, brothers, brothers, brothers. We should be perfectly comfortable to speak the way the Bible speaks. We do not need to get theologically uptight. As if we have to know the things that only belong to Father God to know. Like who's elect and who's not. We don't need to worry about that. We don't calculate that way. James is dealing with real problems, real sin in the church. And he does so by addressing the church as a whole, not questioning their standing, but saying, brothers, we, we, we should follow suit. We be comfortable the way the Bible speaks. If you profess faith, you're a Christian. If you're a child in a Christian household where at least one parent is a Christian, Paul says, you're a Christian. Now, whether you're a faithful Christian keeping covenant or you are an apostate Christian, playing the harlot and denying the testimony of the Lord who bought you? That is another question, right? But we don't need to get theologically uptight or proud about trying to identify who's really, really a Christian and who's just a Christian, right? The Bible, when we go through this text, this is what what we're going to see. And in fact, when you go through the New Testament, this is what you see over and over and over, right? The Bible addresses brothers, church, saints, saints at Corinth. One of you is sleeping with your mother-in-law. You need to cut that out or whatever it was, you know? But he's talking to a church. We're not perfect people, are we? Nope. We fall into sin, don't we? Yep. Sometimes we find ourselves tangled up in unconfessed, unrepentant sin, don't we? Yep. And where we start to untangle that mess, and when we start in our dealings with one another, is not from a place of, I don't even know if you're really a Christian. We don't start there. We start with brothers. If someone is a Christian and they're caught up in sin, something like the unrepentant sin of partiality, we don't begin by questioning the status. We begin by calling for confession and repentance. You profess Christ. Christ is the Savior. Come back to your Savior. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin. Well, I don't know if that guy is really a Christian or not because look how bad he sinned. And how are we supposed to know if we can... Trust his repentance. What if his repentance isn't very genuine? I mean, look how quick he just bounced back. As if grace was just like free or something. And he didn't have to wallow in his sin and self-pity for a while longer. And pay for something a little bit himself, right? I don't know if that guy's repentance is genuine. We are so guilty of this partial eye that looks sidelong at our brothers and sisters 
and says, well, I don't know about them. We have to be careful not to do that. The Bible, the New Testament, full of exhortations to messed up people and messed up churches is an exhortation to Christians. And sometimes that exhortation is come and repent and come to Jesus. And this is like, this is totally a little bit off the path here, but this is why every week we, we are inviting you to an altar call to come to Jesus. And for some people, that may be the first time. But for some of you, it is an, an every week reminder. I am a sinner with a, with a great, great Savior. Thanks be to God. And so this is, this is, at best, it's a kind of partiality when we look sidelong at our brothers and sisters. And at worst, it's what James later on calls demonic. Demonic. It's hubris. It's pride. And it's demonic. We, we do this also with our kids sometimes, right? I don't know about them. <laughs> I don't, they've, had, they've needed a lot of spankings lately. I don't know about them. Maybe they need Jesus. <laughs> we know they need Jesus, but just be careful not to assume they're standing based on their circumstances that week. We don't want, we don't want that to happen to us, right? So James, along with other New Testament writers, address and exhort Christians who are guilty at the moment of unrepentant sin. And they don't do this first by automatically questioning their standing. We shouldn't either. In fact, these exhortations begin from a point of assuming their inclusion, don't they? They actually begin from a point of assuming their inclusion within the body of Christ, in the church. And from there, there's a warning against the unrepentant not to fall away. Warning against apostasy. James is addressing brethren who are holding the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Another way that verse can be rendered is um, the, the words the Lord there the Lord of glory. The Lord isn't actually there. It's inserted to help us understand what is being said. And so another way this can be rendered is holding the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. The glory. And so we're talking about partiality. And so it's, it's important for us to remember that our glory is Christ. The poor's glory, the poor man's glory is Christ. The rich man's glory is Christ. Why in the world would we raise up a lesser standard, a lesser glory to judge between our brothers and sisters? If the poor man's glory is Christ and the rich man's glory is Christ, why am I, why am I going to ignore that and say, well, he's in stinky clothes. Go to the back. How silly, right? It's kind of... It's kind of proud and arrogant, isn't it? Verses 2 and 3. Do you prefer the rich over the poor? Do you prefer the rich over the poor? Do you afford the rich more grace and tolerance and patience than you do the poor man in dirty clothes? Are you willing to give the benefit of the doubt to some people and not others simply based on your perception? Answer, yes, we all do this. You're guilty. Way too often. I'm guilty. I'm sorry, I forgot to say this at the beginning, so it's not a distraction. Okay, I wrestled hard with the text this week, and it licked me pretty good. No, I uh, wrestled with a board in my garage, and it, it got me pretty good, but it's getting better now. Sorry, I don't want that to be a distraction. I forgot to say that right off the bat, because you're all wondering, what the heck happened to his eye? What happened to his eye? I asked DJ for one more child, and she said, just kidding. Just kidding. No, it's getting better. Um, We're all guilty of this, right? We're all guilty of this uh, temptation, to give in to this temptation um, 
where we're going to give somebody the benefit of the doubt based upon our perception of that person and how much they may deserve our benefit of the doubt. And, and the fact is, there's nothing wrong with a rich guy getting a good seat and a poor guy getting a lesser seat. There's nothing wrong with that, the, if that's how it shakes out. That's, not, that's no problem. The problem is when you are partial to the rich man over the poor man. And, the, and that's when it becomes a problem. If we, are purposeful, if we purposefully wish the stinky guy would go disappear somewhere, not sit up in the front where everybody has to see, Or smell. And we want the rich guy to come down front, give him a good seat so everybody can see, hey, this guy goes to our church. Isn't that awesome? We must be pretty great if this guy goes there. That's the problem. That's a big problem. If we find ourselves um, inconvenienced by the kids and wishing we would just put put them away. Let's start a Sunday school. That's a problem. If for that reason, okay? I'm not saying everybody who does Sunday school is in sin. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if we just say, let's, we just need some me time. Because they just get a little bit on our nerves and a little bit annoying and a little bit loud and a little bit distracting. Now that's a problem. You see? If we find ourselves embarrassed by how certain people in our gathering will be perceived by visitors, that's a problem. I remember so very vividly there was a man who was a part of our congregation who is now a part of the great congregation. He's not here right now. This, oh, wait, well, he already knows. My, he already knows. And I remember being so embarrassed by this brother. He was an older man. He could hardly hear, and he, he would have to get right up in your face, and you'd have to repeat yourself over and over and over And he loved people, and he loved talking to people. And so a visitor would walk in, and if he didn't know this person, he'd go straight over to this person. And the first thing he'd do is ask if they were Christians. Because if they weren't, he was ready to share the gospel and to exhort them to bow the knee to Christ. And if they said, no, we're Christians, he would say, okay, well, have I got some stories for you? Have you ever heard of the persecuted church? Over, story after story. And I remember so vividly being... Like, oh, he's the first one who caught the visitor. What are they going to think of us and crazy Uncle Ron? And I remember being so severely disciplined by the Lord because I was embarrassed by crazy Uncle Ron. And I I remember the discipline of the Lord saying, do you think I'm embarrassed by him? Would you rather have some shallow, partial person coming in who could be scared away by one crazy guy coming into your church? You want to prefer them? And it was the discipline of the Lord. Of course not. And and I have to say, that's why I'm not embarrassed by any of you anymore. (laughs) I love you all and I'll take all of you. And I'm not embarrassed by you anymore. <laughs> and I wasn't embarrassed by my brother either at the end. And it was just that moment where you realize, do I really think Jesus is embarrassed right now? Who, who, where is Jesus in this scenario? Is he standing with me going, oh, goodness gracious. Can't believe he talked to them first. We Listen, somebody who's shallow enough to be scared away by one, one kooky guy who loves Jesus a lot and can't hear very well. They need a perfect church, and this is not a perfect church, okay? Partiality makes us judges with evil thoughts. That's verse 4. Partiality makes us judges with evil thoughts. If we are partial, if we are looking with squinty eyes, sidelong glances, we are judges with evil thoughts. That's the bad kind of judgment. Verse 5, James says, Beloved brethren, he reminds his beloved brethren how God tells his stories. He chooses the poor, the weak, the runts, the rejects, the losers, the uneducated, the foolish, to make them rich in faith 
and heirs of the kingdom. If I didn't just describe you, uh (laughs) uh-oh. You either need to look more carefully in in the mirror or this probably isn't the place for you. (laughs) And Christianity probably isn't the religion for you. Because it's a a religion, it's a faith of poor losers made rich and strong in a Savior who is so sweet. 1 Corinthians 1, chapter, I mean, verse 26 through 31, Paul says this. It's a longer portion, but listen with me. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to put to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us Wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. God chose the poor to be rich heirs. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When Luke records Jesus' sermon on the mount, here's what he says. Luke 6, 20 and the beginning of 21 says this. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Does Jesus get too confusing in his sermon? Is he a little bit confusing? We want to think so, don't we? (laughs) What is poor in spirit? Is he being confusing? Is he talking about spiritual poverty or material poverty? He did say to that guy, John Mark, sell all you have and follow me if you want to be my disciple. What is he talking about, this Jesus? If we read down to verse 27, we'll see that the blessing of the poor in Luke, in that sermon is contrasted with a woe to the rich. The rich who, who Jesus says have received their consolation. What is the consolation that the rich have received? It is their riches in this life. It is their reputation and their recognition and their wealth in this life. Does that mean that being rich is sinful? Yes. Yes, it is sinful and is dangerous. You should all be poor. However, there are lots of examples of faithful Christian wealth holders in the Bible, aren't there? Mm-hmm. And throughout history, were they in sin because of that wealth that they had been given? Of course not. This is the point. It doesn't matter if the slave of Christ has one or 100 or 100 million to steward. Because the slave of Christ recognizes that all of it belongs to God. He owns none of it. He has a say. He can lay a a claim to exactly zero. None of it belongs to the slave of Christ. It is all Christ. It is all Christ. Not 10% of it. It is all Christ. And so the tithe, you know, when you think about the tithe, if you're stingy when it comes to the giving of the tithe, the 10% of your increase, however you do that, That's because you've actually convinced yourself that 
that you should believe this arrogant lie that what you have belongs to you by right. By right, it's mine. I worked for it. I deserve it. And you are rich and you are in sin. What you have belongs to God and you are to cheerfully bring a tribute to him. A tribute. The mob works with extortion. You give me 10%, I let you keep the rest. That's extortion. That's not what God does. He doesn't say, you give me 10%, I let you keep the rest. God says, it's all mine. You, give te- you bring in the first fruits, you bring in the tithe, the, the tithe of your increase, and you remind yourself, and you proclaim as a witness that all of what you have, including your very self, belongs to me. It's not an extortion. It's a tribute. And so we bring a minimum, we bring a tithe into the storehouse. We do this because God has given us everything, including the breath in our lungs. Everything. And so whether you have nothing but Jesus' shirt on your back and his breath in your lungs, or whether you have a hefty number of Jesus' cattle on a thousand hills, you are nothing but an heir of God's grace. Nothing but an heir of God's grace. You are nothing without him. And with him, all things are yours, Paul says. All things are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. Christ is our glory. Christ is your glory. He is the poor man's glory. And he is the rich man's glory. Verses 6 and 7. What does James do here? James passes judgment. They have dishonored the poor man. They have dishonored the poor man. And then he goes and he shows us that stereotypes and generalizations at times can be a very legitimate and useful rhetorical tool. (laughs) There's this YouTube channel that me and my children watch called Dude Perfect. And they have this um, skit where they do this thing called stereotypes. And they're just goofy, funny stereotypes. And so they'll do Thanksgiving Day stereotypes. And they'll go through the whole list of Thanksgiving Day stereotypes. Or neighborhood stereotypes. Or beachgoer stereotypes. And it's just hilarious. You know why it's so funny? Because they're all so true. We all know the guy who fits the bill. Who puts way too much sunscreen on his nose. You know, we all know the guy who fits these stereotypes, and they're funny. And James shows us in this text, actually, that there's a legitimate and useful time to, to use generalizations and stereotypes. And he says, the rich, don't the rich, aren't the rich the oppressors? The rich, they're the oppressors. Kind of sounds like the libs today, doesn't it? Yikes. But James, careful there. We don't want to get too, you know, Political. The rich. He says, don't the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? And so there are probably rich sitting there listening to that letter who are probably offended, don't you think? Maybe. Why would they be offended? Because they're oppressors. And maybe they're not oppressing the way James is specifically talking about, but at a minimum, if they're offended, they're oppressing with the cudgel of offense. And then there's those rich who are sitting there who are not offended at all at what James says. They know exactly what James is talking about, and they say, yep, they're nodding along with their amen. Yep, it's the rich. That's their problem. And you know why they're not offended at all? Because they're the ones with the money who's helping out the poor man, who's getting drug into court. Who's getting his tunic taken away? They're the guys who with the houses big enough to host all night prayer meetings for the poor man who's stuck in prison. (laughs) They're not offended at all at what James says. They know exactly what he's saying. They know exactly that the rich are guilty. Verses 8 and 9, James says, You cannot fulfill the royal law and show partiality. You cannot fulfill the royal law and show partiality. You are a transgressor transgressor of the law if you show partiality. 
You are a transgressor of the law if you show partiality. What is partiality? Again, partiality is injustice in judgment. Injustice in judgment. Unequal weights and measures. You give one guy the benefit of the doubt that you refuse to give to the other guy who does the exact same thing. You, you give your family the benefit of the doubt or you give your friend the benefit of the doubt, but you're not going to give this guy over here the benefit of the doubt. We can't talk about partiality without at least mentioning racism. Racism or so-called racism. What, what is called racism today, God calls partiality. What is called racism today, God calls partiality. The sin of racism, this idea of what we call racism, would be what the Bible refers to as partiality or um, unjust judgment. Technically speaking, there is no such thing as racism because all humans are one race from one set of parents. So if we want to get technical, there is no such thing as racism because we are all humans. Welcome to earth. Your skin may be darker than somebody else's. You may be from a different tribe or tongue, but we are all humans from a common ancestry. If you believe the Bible, if you don't, it's still true. And so um, what is called racism today is really the sin of partiality. And obviously partiality between those who have different skin tones is sinful. Besides being sinful, it is just asinine. What in the world would provoke somebody from drawing this distinction by skin color? It is asinine, uh, and it is sin, and it's the sin of partiality. Um, partiality is, pops up its ugly head all over the political spectrum today. Um, sometimes it's called racism. Sometimes it's called wokeism, and there's all the isms in between that spectrum, and they're mostly all bad. One of those things, and I'm not going to spend time on this, but one of those things that those isms is kinism. If you've never heard of that, don't worry a thing about it. But if you have, and if you've been tempted to dabble with that or entertain that, know that it is nothing more than a fancy justification for sinful partiality. And we can talk more about that later if you have questions about that or if you've been um, seeing those kinds of discussions online and want to find out more about it. But just know that it is a fancy justification for sinful partiality and it should be avoided. James uses not only simple examples like two, two people who look different by no choosing of their own, right? I didn't pick my skin. I didn't pick it, and neither did you, right? James doesn't just stick to a simple example of of people who are different by circumstance of no choosing of their own. He actually uses the example of rich and poor, and that naturally imports into this discussion um, not just external circumstances that work on a person, but also brings into this discussion our own behaviors, our own behaviors. So when we think of economic disparity, rich and poor, it forces us to reckon with the truth that partiality is wrong even when the individual's actions may have contributed to their situation. Let me say that again. Partiality is still a sin when an individual's action or inaction has contributed to their different circumstance, their situation. In fact, James explicitly brings up the behavior and the attitude of the rich into the discussion, doesn't he? He explicitly brings up the attitude and the behavior. And so this means that to be partial to someone who is poor, even who is poor due in part to their own behavior, is still a sin. And we can call it what we want. We can call it tough love. We can call it conservatism. We can call it all kinds of things. But it's, if we are partial, it's a sin. 
Did God show you mercy because you were a mere victim to sin and death? No, and thank God, right? You were not a mere victim to sin and death. You were a rebel. You were a rebel, and God showed mercy to you. He sent his son to die for you. And we want to then turn around and point out the stupid, self-destructive behavior of the homeless drug addict, don't we? To justify our partiality when we ignore her on the street as if she's invisible. Well, she made some really dumb, bad choices, didn't she? Guess what? That may all be true. And it doesn't give you an excuse to be partial. And we better be careful. Because if, if we say, well, you know what? Those, those examples of partiality don't matter. Who cares about this? I walk past them, ignore them. Who cares? Really? Who cares? Well, let's see. Who cares? Who might care? <laughs> Who might care about that poor person? You may be tempted to show partiality against your LGBTQ plus neighbors because they have foolishly chosen an abhorrent lifestyle to seek an identity and fulfillment in their sin. However, we don't get to claim to love our neighbors and then show partiality by who we condemn and who we ignore. We don't get to claim, John makes this very clear, James is talking about it here, we don't get to claim to love God while we hate our neighbor. That's not a thing. We don't get to claim to love our neighbor, keep the royal law, while showing partiality by who we can choose to condemn and choose to ignore. And so... Maybe you love your neighbor and you say, well, I'm going to ignore the LGBTQ sin and just harp on, you know, middle class white sins. That's a thing right now, right? Let's just stick with these really easy things. We're against racism. Let's ignore this. Let's ignore all this. Don't claim to love your neighbor if you're going to ignore them. And the, and the reverse is true as well. We don't get to pick and choose. We must be judicious. Show me your love by loving. Show me your faith by works. That's next week. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How do you want to be judged, Christian? How do you want to be judged? If we skip down to verses 12 and 13, we'll see that we are to speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. And that judgment, with, um, that judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. How do you want to be judged? Do you want to be ignored by God? Do you want to be ignored by God? Do you want him to just leave you alone? Maybe throw you a break every now and then? Is that what you want? I hope not. And if not, then why do we treat so many of our neighbors that way? So many. Do you want to, uh, do you want to be condemned by God? Since if we're being really honest, you're just a worm. Do you want to be condemned by God? Do I want to be condemned by God? I told you I wrestled hard with this text. No, I don't want to be condemned by God. I don't want to be left alone by God. Do you want to be mercifully loved and pursued and transformed by the Heavenly Father who promises you to work all things together for your good? As you're brought into a personal love relationship with Him through Jesus Christ? Who picks number three? Who picks number three? That's what I want. That's what I say I want, right? But when I go and I, I start to show partiality toward my neighbor who I ignore and I justify it, what am I actually saying? Yeah, go ahead, ignore me too, God. Verses 10 and 11. Some people would like to think of the law of God as a, as a bunch of individual commands 
and precepts and statutes whereby you can keep most and only break a few of the little ones and overall be assessed as a pretty good keeper of the law. That's not reality. James tells us what the reality is. The law is a plate glass window. The law is not 613 little bitty windows, varying degrees of size and importance. And as long as you don't break the big ones in the middle, don't murder, don't commit adultery, you're good to go. Break a few in the corner down low, nobody hardly noticed. It's all right, no problem, there's forgiveness. No, the law is a big plate glass window. And when that stone of your sin transgresses that window, guess what? It's broken. And you're a transgressor of the law. It's broken. All of it. We are guilty. You don't have to go and commit murder and hide the body and commit a serial adultery to be a transgressor of the law. You are a transgressor of the law in need of a Savior, Jesus Christ. And as a transgressor of the law, you are, listen carefully, you are, how many of you have seen that movie, Sound of Freedom? If you haven't seen it, you should go see it. It's a great movie. But if you have seen it, you know, the, you know the righteous indignation that rises up when you see that. But here's the reality. When you are a transgressor of the law, you are no less guilty than a human trafficking pedophile. Do you realize that? Let that sink in for a minute. When you transgress the law of God, you are no less guilty against his holiness and his righteousness than a human trafficking pedophile. Verses 11 and, I mean 12 and 13. So what then? James says, speak and do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Again, how do you want to be judged? What is the law of liberty? The law of liberty is what Paul in Romans 8, 2 calls the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That sets us free from the law of sin and death. It's what John calls the truth. The truth that sets us free. It is the freedom that Peter says we have as slaves, as bond servants of God. The freedom we have as bond servants. You are not your own. You have been bought with the price. How could this amazing grace, how could this amazing grace engender in us a partiality that would look on someone else as if they were beneath you? How do we do that? How can we do that? You know what the problem is? We're not seeing something clearly. We're not seeing something quite right. If our amazing grace were to engender this idea that somebody else is beneath you in dignity, in value, in worth, When you find yourself wrestling with that partiality, you must kill it. And part of the ways you part of the way you kill it is by seeing rightly, seeing your sin rightly, seeing your savior rightly. One of the ways practically to kill partiality is to pursue hospitality. To pursue hospitality. I want to read you from Romans chapter 12. Verse 9. Listen to this. Verse 9, I'm going to read through 13. The beginning, remember, of Romans 12 starts like this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable To God, which is your reasonable service. And this is what he says. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. 
in honor, give preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. One practical way to kill partiality is to be given to hospitality, to pursue hospitality. Later in the letter of James, he addresses wars and fightings within the body, and he points to our selfish lust. He points, remember the carnal mind, which is turned in on self. James says, man, even in your praying, you're turned in on yourself. He points to those selfish lusts, that carnality that turns into self and says, well, yeah, fine, I'll, I, will, uh, I will let you sit here if it's going to benefit me in some way. You poor stinky guy can't benefit me in any way. You go back there. And James says, no, kill yourself. Be done with yourself. Put that all aside. Do not show partiality. The answer is be hospitable. What is hospitality? So to see rightly, to see our sin, to see our Savior, His grace, His mercy, even when we deserved wrath, what did He give us? Mercy. Thanks be to God. To see His commandments. We, one of the things we want to change in our vision is we want to see His commandments not as a burden, but as light. Now, how are you going to know if that command that looks burdensome, but is really light, is really light and not burdensome? How are you going to know? You better just do it. Pick it up and obey. Do it. You know why we don't do that and why we still think so very often that the commands of the Lord are burdensome? Because we sit there looking at the pack and we go, that's got to be way too heavy for me. Can't do it. Can't do it. Not me. Not this season. Can't do it. It's too hard. Too inconvenient. Too much, God. I can't handle that. And we never touch it. We don't pick it up. We don't obey. But the promise, the, the word to us is his commands are not burdensome. Do you believe him or do you disbelieve him? Do you believe him or are you going to set yourself up as the guy who's going to get to decide that and tell Jesus what's up? If that's where you want to be, I don't want to stand next to you. Okay? He says his commands are not burdensome. His law, you know what he calls his law? Liberty, a delight. We say, um, I'm not seeing it exactly. You got, we got to calib- recalibrate here. So hospitality, share meals together. Share meals together. Uh, what our family decided to do a while back was to have a standing open door every Saturday night at 6 o'clock on our compound. We have a meal. And anybody and everybody's welcome. Bring a dish. If we run out of food, we run out of food. If the house isn't clean, the house isn't clean. But you're welcome. A standing open invitation. Have people over. Show hospitality. Have people over. This is easier for some than it is for others, isn't it? Yeah, go ahead. All the introverts, you can nod your head. I know you don't want to. You're an introvert. You don't want to nod your head. That's the point. (laughs) But it's easier for some and not for others. I get it. You say, well, my house is really not great for hosting. I get it. It's easier for some and not for others. That's not an excuse. Figure something out. There's ways for you to be hospitable. Um, if it's too difficult for you to be hospitable in your home, be like Jesus and invite yourself to somebody else's home. I always tell my kids, you can't invite somebody else. But after you get past a certain age, a certain height, then absolutely you can and should invite yourself to other people's houses. I I just put this into practice the other day, and I can't wait to um, go visit somebody's house who I invited myself to. Um, be like, I'm being funny, but I'm kind of being serious. Like Jesus invited himself over and over to people's houses, didn't he? 
Yeah, so maybe we need to kind of just change that little cultural sin. We don't, that's not polite. Well, okay, fine. Jesus wasn't polite, but we're going to be like Jesus. So invite yourself to somebody's house. We are a family, whether you like it or not. And as our family grows, guess what? Just like in your family, time changes things, right? Your family grows, it becomes more difficult and more difficult to stay connected. Um, And in our body here, our congregation here is not going to be automatically immune to that. It's going to, as, as things change, as time goes on, as seasons change for people, kids grow and eat more and more and more. It changes things. It makes things more difficult, right? You guys want to have me over, you got, <laughs> I know, I get it. It's like, you know, you're inviting like a lot of mouths. That's a lot. You say, can we just have uh, just the grown, you know? No, it doesn't work that way either because we don't always get the babysitters because that's, again, a lot. And so things, things might get more difficult for us as a congregation, but that's not an excuse. It's an opportunity. So we may not be, all, uh, we may not be as close as we would all like in the moments or the seasons, and we must carefully guard against individual families or individual groups turning in on themselves. I'm going to tell you, we've got to guard against that. Individual families or individual groups turning in on themselves. Even subconsciously turning in on themselves. I I feel very confident that if I were to go and and grill all of you guys, that nobody's going to be like, yeah, you know, we just really don't like them. We're not going to have them over. But... But is there the case of subconsciously turning in on ourselves and drawing these lines of distinction, partiality, where we're not even realizing we're doing it? Why would I have that guy over? He's a single older guy. That's weird. We're a young family. Don't be partial. Right? So we want to guard against this. Consciously and subconsciously. Or um, we, what I tell my kids, you know, sometimes something will happen. I say, Dad, it was an accident. I didn't mean to. And my question is, did you mean not to? I was swinging my arms around and I didn't mean to hit him in the face. Okay. But did you mean not to hit him in the face? And that's where the problem is. You're being careless. You're not thinking. You're not considering. And so I believe you. You didn't say, I'm going to hit him in the face. But were you careful? Were you purposeful to not hit them in the face? And that's where we need, to, we, we need to really kind of sit up straight and pay attention here. We may be, um, it may be the case where we say, well, I didn't mean to let this happen or that happen. The question is, are you meaning to not let it happen? So there's an even more fundamental hospitality, though, that I'm talking about. And that is even more useful to kill partiality. And that's where we are cultivating a love. We are pursuing a love that is not contingent on the other person. Are you pursuing a love? Are you willing to show hospitality To the stranger. Because that's really when you get into the technical definition of the idea of hospitality. It's kindness to stranger. Are you... Everybody can love their friends, right? That's what Jesus says. The real trick comes when, when it's time to love the enemy. Or the guy who's just unlovable. Or the guy who can't do anything positive for you. But take and take and take. Do you love... Even them. And so that is a fundamental hospitality that we have to cultivate. Not just invite the people over. That's good and I want you to do that. But that fundamental hospitality that is a pursuit of a love that is not contingent on the other person. Or on their behavior. Or on their circumstances. Where each of us are constantly considering how we can love and serve one another in unconditional ways. 
in unconditional ways. We must receive others into our fellowship and our communion, not just, listen to me carefully, not just with a home and a table and food. Those are tools. Those are means. We must receive others into our communion with those things, but through those things into our very lives, to our very selves, to your thoughts and your dreams and your expectations and your desires, your true thoughts. How how many of you have been hospitable by inviting somebody into your home? And the whole time, you know that you're keeping them just on the other side of that door. Of what you really think. Of who you really are. Of those true expectations and desires. That, that, that idea, that, that facade is up. I've got to keep a, keep, a, keep a smiling face on. I can't let them see what I really think and who I really am in this moment. And the point is, true hospitality is going to come when we are willing to let, the, let others into that fellowship. That communion. That's how you kill partiality. That's how you kill partiality. Listen, you can check the list and say, I invited the homeless guy to dinner. Check. Have you shown him a love? That I want our fellowship, our communion with one another at home and table with food to be means to bring people into our lives, our thoughts, our desires, our dreams, our expectations. How many of you have dreams and desires and expectations that you've told Nobody else in here except maybe your spouse. And I'm not saying you got to tell everybody everything. I'm not saying that. But I'm, my point is, how, how, when was the last time you were truly and honestly vulnerable with somebody else? Let them into your thoughts. I want the action. I want our action of breaking bread together. You remember what Jesus said the breaking of the body was? The breaking of his body was a picture of his broken body. What did his broken body do? His broken body made a way for us. Made a way for us to go where? Into Christ. He's, think about the communion we have with Christ through the broken bread that we are reminded of when we come to the table, which we're going to be doing in just a moment. I want this action of our breaking literal bread together every week. To be an accurate representation of how we are living. We are literally, when we break bread together, I want us to literally be opening, breaking ourselves open. Opening up ourselves to commune with others. Opening up ourselves to give our lives to one another. And you know, of course, it doesn't stop in this room, right? We still got to stop ignoring the homeless drug addict on the street. She has a story too. We need to lay down our lives, ourselves, to be consumed in loving service to one another. Expecting nothing in return. Are you willing, are you ready to be consumed Expecting nothing in return. For your life to be consumed. This morning we talked about the story of Ruth. You know the guy in the story of Ruth who did not want to be consumed and have his, you know, to lay down his life for somebody else? Do you know that guy in Ruth? Yeah. No, of course you don't. No, none of us do. He's all, what's his face? That's the point. The story. That guy who said, I'm not going to give up my inheritance for this woman. No way. I'm keeping it. I'm going to preserve my legacy. Who is he? Don't know. You know who we do know? We do know the people in that story who laid it all down and said, you can have my entire future.
It's time to crucify the ugly sin of partiality. Okay? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to get ready to come to this table and how appropriate it is as we consider the sin of partiality. To remember Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians who were coming to the table in an unworthy manner. And what was the unworthy manner they were coming to the table in? They were not considering one another. Some were getting drunk. Some were going hungry. They either drank a lot more wine than we do or theirs was a lot more potent than ours. Or they were coming back through the line over and over. I don't know. Um, The Corinthian church was shaming the poor man because they were doing this. And the partiality that they were showing was a failure to examine themselves rightly and see themselves as part of a body, equal parts of a body. In in order to remedy the problem, Paul said, hey, you need to see rightly. Examine yourselves. And the irony here is that many of... Uh, Many evangelical churches have taken Paul's exhortation here to mean that this time around this table is meant for self-introspection. And it's a personal time. And it is not. This is a time when the Lord shows hospitality, not just to you, but to us. Not just to you, but to his bride. And we come together. And we get to do, be like Jesus, be like our Father, and show hospitality to one another. Self-introspection happens before. And so when we come to the table, we are coming impartially. Seeing each other, one body, one bread, with no one being left behind in shame. And this is why each week you are invited to Jesus. Each week, this is an altar call. No one has to be left behind in their shame. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Please stand and receive your charge. The charge is this. We want to be impartial in our love for one another, even down to the seating arrangements like James was talking about, the seating arrangements. And I have to say, last week there were a lot of people here And I was very proud to observe some of you give up your own comfortable spots in preference to others. Seating arrangements matter. (laughs) And I hope to continue to see that happen cheerfully. When it comes to partiality in our congregation, probably the most common stumbling block for us is going to be those personal preferences, diet, hobbies, opinions, taste, style, etc. Personality differences, age, stage of life, theological positions and differences that will tempt us to be partial toward one another and draw divisions where there ought not to be any. Maybe subconscious divisions, but divisions nonetheless. You'll naturally, I promise you, you will naturally get along better with some and you'll find it more difficult to connect with others. It may even be the case that some people in here drive you crazy. I don't know. Maybe maybe it is the case for you. That is a reality. That is a fact. But it is not an excuse. It is not an excuse. The classic, uh, you know, thing that people say, I'm a Christian, so I love you, but I don't have to like you. No. Nah. Let's throw that out. That's partial. Let's not do that. We want our love to be expressed in all of the ways towards others, in a very hospitable, impartial way. And so... You might not get along with everybody as naturally and easily, but that is not an excuse. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for you to kill partiality. You feel that rise up with that person or that group? Guess what you can do? Kill partiality and invite them out to dinner and pay for their lunch. 
I mean, whatever, you know, lunch, dinner. It's not an excuse. It's an opportunity to love one another and let us do that well. Amen? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let's sing our thanks. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you.